0: Alrighty. Well, if it's your first time to uh, Theological Equipping or to the Parkway Church in general, welcome. We're glad you're here. Thanks for being here. We've been walking through uh, in Theological Equipping class the doctrine of humanity as a part of this larger larger semester, uh, this theme of the doctrine of man, sin, and redemption. And you can't understand redemption until you understand sin. You can't understand sin until you understand mankind. And so we've been walking through all of these topics, whether it's the nature of mankind, the value and dignity of uh, human life. We've been talking about the Imago Dei, talking about uh, marriage and the roles of men and women, uh, divorce. And last week, we talked about homosexuality. And this week, we're talking about transgenderism. So we've just been slowly turning up the dial every single week. Uh, and so today we're talking about transgenderism and you might ask why are we talking about this? What, is, what, what are we trying to learn? Why, why talk about transgenderism? Why devote an entire Sunday morning to this topic? Uh, and I will answer that question with a, with a story. Uh, when I was in college uh, at Texas A&M, I enrolled in a class called, uh, uh, what was it? Introduction to Ecology and Environmental Systems which sounds amazing. Doesn't that sound exciting? And it was just that exciting. Uh, Quick background story. I started out at Baylor University, um, and then I transferred to Texas A&M because I had a lot of friends at A&M. There was a a young lady at A&M named Kelsey Van Steenbergen, now Kelsey Hollis, my wife. I wanted to be closer to her. And so I got to A&M and I was so excited uh, and I had this 9 a.m. class called Introduction to Ecology and Environmental Systems that I could, I could care less about. I hated this class. And I would always think it's like late at night, I'm hanging out with all these friends, do I go to bed early so I can make it on time to my 9 a.m. class? Or do I keep hanging out with friends and enjoy my life at a I would always choose the latter. I would never go to class. I went like, I think, twice in the beginning of the semester. It was awful. But my third visit to the class, I walk in, and there on the projector, on the projector screen, it said, exam one. I go, oh, no. (laughs) I am not ready for this. I had no idea. And uh, at a lot of universities, in order to take an exam, you have to go get this thing called a blue book, which is this pointless commodity that is just a bound, uh, small book of notebook paper, and that's how you have to take a test. I didn't have one of those. You got to bring it. So I ran to the library. I'm sweaty. It's crazy. I get the $2 blue book. It's overpriced. You get back, sit down in my chair, and somehow I haven't missed the first question, which was define ecology, which how many, raise your hand if you know what ecology is. That's about how much I knew, okay? (laughs) And so I had no clue And so I just kind of made something up that sounded right, sounded somewhat accurate. Uh, And then came the second question, and I will never forget. This this image is kind of burned in my mind. It was a video just looping over and over again of a bear next to, like, this frozen river trying to catch fish. And then there were deer in the background. It was very cold. And underneath this video, it said, what observations can you make? I have no idea. I had to write, like, three pages. And so I just... (laughs) There's a bear, probably grizzly, fishing for probably salmon, maybe trout. And I'm just making up stuff. I, my answer could not have been further from what the professor was expecting and desiring to hear from me. So needless to say, I failed that test miserably. I was not prepared for it. In fact, my first semester at A&M, uh, after coming through my time at the desert, being Baylor, into the Promised Land, I was so excited. My first semester, I got a 169 GPA which is not good and really hard to come back from. That earned me a meeting with the dean of students uh, who told me he would love and be very happy to send me back to Baylor where, quote, I could continue in my ignorance. So that, was, uh, that, that gave me some gumption and I was able to get my grades back. Uh, but why do I share this story? I think, I think that this is similar to the church's response to transgenderism, to the church's response to a lot of topics we just weren't ready for it. And it's not because we weren't reading uh, the most recent gender theory books or anything like that. It's because we didn't have a strong theological foundation upon which we could have these conversations. So people would come to us and say, I feel this way. This is what I think. And we go, okay. Or we go, I, that's wrong. And they say, why? And we go, I don't know. And we just, we fail miserably. So that's what we want to do today. A quick reason for why we do theological equipping is so that that firm foundation, that foundation of theological understanding, so that you can have conversations, we want to help equip you to do that. It's hard to make disciples of those struggling with the topics of homosexuality and transgenderism if you have no idea what the Bible says. And so we want to equip you so that you can make disciples and do all that God has commanded you to do. So, let's start. You have on your uh, handout some uh, terms. Let's start just kind of defining our terms for the day. Uh, Transgenderism is an umbrella term used to describe the general philosophy of individuals who feel there is an incongruence between their biological sex and their gender identity. Okay? Biological sex meaning you're born with a certain anatomy. But then gender identity meaning... How you want people to think, you're, what you want the social understanding of your gender to be. The gender that they prefer to identify as. And then gender dysphoria is a, a, a clinical term used to describe the discomfort or distress an individual experiences due to a perceived mismatch between their sex and their gender identity. So, wh- though they were born with the anatomy of a male, they say, I'm not a male though, I feel like I am female. This is the argument of transgenderism. So, and just like the term uh, homosexuality, uh, many people who would identify as transgender uh, actually hate this term, transgenderism. They think it's very offensive, mainly because they say it paints with too broad of a brush. Okay, because there's, oh, there's extreme examples, and not everybody's that extreme. Some of us are just normal, everyday people. It's kind of like me, uh, and when I introduce myself to someone, they go, what do you do? And I say, I'm a worship minister, and they immediately go, oh, so you don't know anything about theology. You're airheaded. You're like a musician that's a Christian, but you couldn't make it in the real world, so (laughs) that's why you have this job. It's a broad brush, but I still have to use it and have to identify with it because There's no better term for what I do, okay? On the same way I introduce myself to people and say I'm a worship minister, we have to use the most communicable term, which is transgenderism. So that's why we're using that term. It may be offensive, but in scholarly articles, in the media, in everyday conversation, this is the term most agreed upon. So that's why we're using it. So imagine that when we're talking about this term, it's not just some concept that's uh, theory, but that we're actually talking about someone in your life, Imagine that we're talking about a a, a close friend of yours. Imagine that uh, this individual that uh, feels like there's a mismatch between their their biological sex and their gender identity, imagine this is a close friend, someone that you care about very deeply, a family member. Imagine that uh, this person is your child. Do you have a response to the person who comes to you and says, yes, I understand I'm a male, but I feel like I am a woman? Is your response actually thought through? Is it theologically accurate? Is it biblically founded? Is your response compassionate and loving, but not compassionate and loving while sacrificing truth? I've seen two responses, primarily, throughout our culture, neither of which are loving, true, compassionate, or really thought out. Now, the first that's really popular in, in American evangelicalism, uh, trying to hold the line of truth, but failing at the love part is just to say, "Ew, gross!" Not those people. As if somehow those who identify as transgender are outside, uh, are are too far uh, from God's uh, ability to redeem. That the arm of redemption isn't long enough uh, to reach individuals who currently, right now, identify as transgender. That's not thought through. That's not biblical. That's not loving. And then I've seen, hooray for you, full affirmation. Be who you truly are. Do whatever you want, whatever you have to do just to to be who you feel that you are. Full affirmation. That's also not compassionate, not loving, not thought through, not biblical. And so today, our goal today is to better understand and develop a better response and develop, yes, a biblical response to this topic. We want to understand the basic ideology driving the transgender movement. We wanna know what the Bible has to say regarding transgenderism. And then finally, we wanna see uh, how the church should respond, how the church should serve, how the church should minister to these individuals. Uh, We'll we'll sum that up at the very end. Individuals who are broken, hurting, wounded, uh, heavy laden, just as all of us are, waiting, anxiously awaiting the return of Christ. So that's what we're talking about today. So first, I will say I have a lot that I wanna cover And so, man, I may be speaking real quick, but you can do it. I'm not Zach, so you can keep up, okay? (laughs) How should we understand the ideology of transgenderism? They're really boiled down to these two mantras, and I even did some fill-in-the-blank fun for you guys, so enjoy this. Uh, The first being, anatomy isn't destiny. Anatomy isn't destiny. This is kind of a mantra used often in the transgender movement. Anatomy isn't destiny, meaning... What you're born with, your biological sex, your anatomy should not determine what you have to be or identify as henceforth. Anatomy isn't destiny. And the second one is conformity is fatal. Conformity is fatal. So let's break those down. First off, anatomy isn't destiny. Now, me and my sociological, my love for all things sociology, I want to be able to talk about how this has roots in individualism and existentialism and in postmodernism in general and in second-wave feminism, but I don't have time. Uh, I'll just briefly mention, there's this concept. As we pull up this, this uh, weed and we look at all the roots, the first one we see is second-wave feminism. And so let me just talk about that really briefly. There's a lady named Simone de Beauvoir, And she has this famous quote. "Uh, One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. The Simone de Beauvoir. One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. So when two babies are born, you have a male and you have a female. They have different anatomy. But besides that, there's no difference. They have uh, this ability to think rationally, logically. They have this mind, this brain, this soul. And what men have done is oppressed women based simply on their anatomy. This is Simone de Beauvoir's argument, not mine, just so we're clear. (laughs) As the girl grows up, she's like, I want a rough house. I want to play soccer with the boys. Uh, I want to be loud and crazy, just like boys, and be rough and tumble. And you go, no, 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 no. You need to wear a dress so you can't run around and have fun. You need to go be quiet. Girls are polite. Girls are nice. Girls are sweet. You need to just stay over there in your little girl box, and we're going to let the guys have fun and do whatever they want. So Simone de Beauvoir says, over time, one isn't born a woman, but she's oppressed and she becomes a woman based on this man's, mankind's oppression of woman. Does that make sense? That's her argument. I don't agree with it. But essentially, she's saying, pay no attention to the material aspect of me. It would be like, she argues, "Uh, if, let's say, somebody drives a Prius or something. Someone drives a Prius, and then other people around start identifying their identity based on the external reality. People start saying, well, he drives a Prius, and they start attaching all of these oppressive categories to them. <laughs> <clears throat> She's saying, you should not do that. You should not, the person is their own identities. The soul is the driver of this flesh meat machine. That's her argument. The soul is this driver, and so we wanna understand people according to their soul, not according to her, their anatomy. Do you see how this turns into the transgender movement over time? Anatomy isn't destiny. Uh, this is from Dr. Deanna Adkins, who's a professor at Duke University School of Medicine. Uh, while she was giving uh, her expert opinion in federal court uh, over the controversial bathroom bill, HB2, uh, House Bill Number 2, uh, this is what she said before the court as her uh, expert testimony. And just this is radical language. From a medical perspective... The appropriate determinant of sex is gender identity. It is counter to medical science to use chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, external genitalia, or secondary sex characteristics to override gender identity for purposes of classifying someone as male or female. Her argument, this doctor, is that it is not medically sound to say that your anatomy determines your sex, but rather she says according to how you feel your gender, your sex is, that is what determines what to do with your anatomy. Number two, conformity is fatal. So there's a shocking statistic that you'll hear all over the place. 4.6% of, American, of the American population attempt suicide. of the American population attempt suicide. 41% of those who identify as transgender attempt suicide. 41%. That's almost half. So that's 10 times more likely than the rest of the population. So like I said, the statistic is I've seen it everywhere. I've seen it misquoted. Many people will say that 41% of people who identify as transgender commit suicide. That's not the stat. They attempt suicide. You see the difference there? Not that they commit suicide, they attempt. So I've seen it misquoted in the Washington Post. I've seen it misquoted often. Uh, HBO did a special on transgender youth last year. And uh, here's what they said. It was an interview with a parent of a six-year-old boy, six-year-old boy who identifies as a girl. And uh, this parent was asking the school board to allow her child to use the bathrooms of uh, her choice. And this is what she said, okay? So she's a parent of a six-year-old boy who identifies as a girl. The suicide rate for a transgender youth is 41%. So you hear the suicide rate is 41%. What she's saying is, uh, as soon as your child identifies as transgender, there's a 41% chance that that child will will commit suicide, which is not necessarily the stat. But I, I don't doubt, she's probably been told that. When she walked into a gender clinic, when she, walked to the doc- when she came into the doctor's office, I don't doubt that this is the stat quoted to her. She says the suicide rate for a transgender youth is 41%. That's why we're fighting so adamantly for these children. I'm a mom of a little girl that I would like to see live. I'm a mom of a little girl who has a 41% suicide rate that is a very real thing. Please understand, I'm not fighting about bathrooms. I'm fighting about her life. It's a matter of life or death. Conformity is fatal. So don't make these people conform. That's what she's arguing. Just a couple of days ago, <clears throat> a judge ruled uh, that the parents of a transgender teen who is 17 years old, teen who identifies as transgender, the parents are not qualified to continue to have custody of this child because they will not support the medical interventions that are recommended by a gender clinic. And so they have lost custody of their child and the child is now in the custody of the grandparents. It's out of Ohio, you can look it up. Here's what it said. A team at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, where the teen has been treated since 2016, advised the court that he should start treatment as soon as possible to decrease his suicide risk. That's the rationale. Conformity is fatal. If we don't allow these individuals to continue in their transition, to to adapt their anatomy to their psychology, fatalities, suicide, that's the only thing that will happen 41% of the time. Now again, that's not necessarily the right stat, but this is the argument. Parents of children, who have gender dysphoria, who struggle with gender dysphoria, are are fed this statistic all the time. If you do not support your child and their desire to be a different gender than they were born with, then they will commit suicide. That's the argument. Read read articles, and this this stat is almost always referenced. Conformity is fatal. Now, there's a couple of red flags I want to mention before we talk about the biblical argument, okay? And I'm going to try to be real quick on these. (laughs) First, There's very little research, very little research. According to the academic journal called Transgender Health, they say, there is a lack of research into transgender people's experiences, particularly regarding the impact of transition-related interventions on suicidality. That's from a, in favor of individuals continuing in transition, they say there's a complete lack of, of research. The stat that's often quoted, this 41% stat, is actually really unreliable. And who said so? The people that produced the stat. They said that this questionnaire asked only one item about suicidal behavior, and it was, have you ever attempted suicide? With the options of yes or no. And here's what they said. Researchers have found, this is quoting them, after publishing the research. Researchers have found that using this question alone in surveys can inflate the percentage of affirmative responses since some respondents may use it to communicate self-harm behavior rather than suicidal attempt. So someone could say, yeah, one time I I drank a lot and I passed out and I wouldn't have cared if I didn't wake up in the morning. So I guess, yeah, I have attempted suicide. You see the, the difference there? So sometimes our stats are unreliable uh, additionally, no research currently exists that demonstrates uh, any long-term benefit to transitioning. We, in reality, we don't know what much of this stuff does. We don't have good research regarding the long-term effects of giving a a, a girl who's born female testosterone over a long period of time. We don't know the long-term effects physiologically, emotional, emotionally, psychologically, physically. The long-term effects of giving a male estrogen over a long period of time. We don't we don't know. We don't have good research. We have no basis from which to draw any reliable conclusion. And that's why these medical interventions are not FDA approved. These puberty blockers and hormones are actually being prescribed off label because the FDA is not going to put their name on it because they, there's not enough research. Our best research actually shows that puberty can often quell feelings of gender dysphoria. So here's, what's often, here's what happens with children. Uh, a child who is, let's say, eight years old goes to a gender clinic and is reporting uh, feelings that seem consistent with gender dysphoria. The gender clinic will say, well, eventually, we want you to transition. But so that we don't have to do more work in the end, you need to take puberty blockers to uh, quell, to, to stop the, the onset, the beginning of puberty, so that once we have you on hormones, cross-sex hormones, once a male is taking estrogen, then we can commence puberty, take you off the puberty blockers so that you can, you can enter puberty as if you were a woman. But our best research shows that puberty often quells these feelings of gender dysphoria, but we're blocking that. 80 to 95% of children who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, listen to this, 80 to 95% of children who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria will eventually identify with their biological gender or sex. 80 to 95%. But before they can even develop further into that gender or sex, we're blocking it. In fact, the two best long-term studies we have both suggest that suicidality actually increases after so-called sex reassignment surgery. And one of these, which is one of the best studies that we have, is out of Sweden, which is far more, uh, let's say far less socially conservative than the United States. If the issue is discrimination because the United States is this uh, judgmental, far too conservative society, in Sweden, where this study was done, after transition surgery the risk of suicide increased. It increased. Finally, <laughs> there is no answer to this question. What does it feel like to be a man? What does that feel like? Shania Twain, what are you saying when you say, man, I feel like a woman? What does that mean? You have to be able to tell one person that comes into your clinic, yes, the feelings that you're having are the feelings of feeling like a woman. Or you have to tell this other person, but not yours. Your feelings are not consistent with those of someone who feels like a woman. But what, are, what, what is that? Show me that empirical, objective reasoning that says this person truly does feel like a woman, this person over here truly does not feel like a woman, so you can move forward in transition therapy and you cannot. But no one can say, no one can answer that question. I've heard no answer from a transgender activist regarding what it means to feel like a man. If you woke up tomorrow and you felt like the opposite gender, describe to me those feelings. How would you know that that is what you're feeling and not feeling something else? What would you say? Well, I feel a lot more emotional all of a sudden. I'm a man and I'm not normally emotional. Well, maybe you're just an emotional dude, like Zach Lee. (laughs) Or if you're a woman and you say, I just don't feel emotional, all of a sudden I woke up and I just have this desire to drive trucks. That's really stereotypical, but sometimes that's what the argument is. Maybe you're just a, a lady that enjoys driving trucks or something like that. There is, listen to this, even when you think that, if it's true that your brain, your anatomy, everything is male, you're thinking about feeling like a woman as a male. It's tainted with maleness, your thoughts. So those are, those are things that should caution us from moving so quickly, caution our culture from moving so quickly to take custody out of the hands of parents and give them to grandparents based on a risk of suicide. That should caution us. That judge, that ruling may actually be increasing the likelihood of suicide for that child. That judge is, is in favor of severing relationship with parents and in favor of secondary relationships. So listen closely. We, we do not deny the pain and the hardship of feeling as if you should have been born in a different body. We don't deny that. We agree that people, people feel that way. It's a legitimate clinical diagnosis. People feel this distress as if something's not right. Those who struggle with gender dysphoria will undoubtedly face a great deal of difficulty, but we wholeheartedly reject the solutions offered by transgender activists, wholeheartedly. We have no problem rejecting their solutions outright because we believe that mankind, we can't fix our own brokenness. We believe that we have to look outside of us. We have to look to Christ. And we believe that all men are created in this image of God. Therefore, mankind is more valuable and has more dignity than to just be experimented with. But that's what we're living in. We're living in an experiment, the effects of which uh, we do not know. We can't fathom. We don't have any data to see what, what's going to happen because of all this. We have no idea. So it's, it's bad science It's unethical, I would say, for doctors to implement interventions based on conclusions determined without critical analysis, Uh, specifically exploiting more vulnerable populations. Those who identify as transgender tend to be of a lower economic status, socioeconomic status. Those who identify as transgender tend to be less educated. They tend to be children. They tend to be those classified with a mental illness. And these are the populations that are being exploited by this ideology, saying, oh, yeah, you you need to go through these procedures that cost thousands of dollars. They're not covered by insurance. They're not FDA approved, all for the sake of an ideological experiment. It's exploitation. It's not good. It's not helpful. It's not loving. It's not compassionate. Regardless of how much you you feel it's right, regardless of how much you feel like you're being loving, you're being compassionate. You're not, it's evil, it's exploitation. It's not good, don't call what is evil good. So that's a brief summary of the transgender ideology, it's a soapbox, how do we respond? What does the Bible say about transgenderism? Sam Alberry, I really like this quote, uh, describes it this way, our culture says, your psychology is your sexual identity, let your body be conformed to it. But the Bible says, your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. I really like that quote. But let me ask you this. Where is that verse? Show me that Bible verse. Where is the verse that says, let your mind be conformed to your body? There is none. This is a common argument against the biblical worldview. But it's not one that we should be afraid of. Jeff mentioned this last week. There are some things that are not addressed explicitly in the Bible because the text assumes it is not necessary to explicitly address it. And so, like, for instance, yesterday I went to the store, Kelsey gave me a list of stuff to buy. We have this little shared list that's really helpful. Wonder list. Everybody check it out. They're not paying me to say that. Um, sometimes she'll write little notes. So if I'm like buying lettuce, she'll say, Buy this type of lettuce, don't get this type of lettuce. It's super gross. Watch out for it. Check the expiration date, please. And so I I do that. But in that note, she doesn't need to say, also, don't buy a Ferrari. (laughs) She doesn't need to say that. So then, because she didn't say that, do I then buy a Ferrari? Well, she didn't say anything about it. No, because that possibility isn't really offered by our grocery store. I can't go, that's not really, that's not an option. Maybe your grocery store, not mine. Kelsey has never had to tell me to not buy a Ferrari in any conversation, actually, because that would just be outside of the sphere of reality. She doesn't need to tell me that. I'm not going to do that. So why doesn't the Bible explicitly say you can't be transgender? Because the text assumes there is one reality that involves two genders. No one needs to be told, hey, there are only two genders. That's not, no one's disagreeing on that. It's this obvious universal reality that the Bible doesn't need to explicitly address. And just because it's not explicitly addressed does not mean that we then support individuals with gender dysphoria undergoing so-called sex reassignment surgery. Just because we say, well, it's not in the text, therefore, go ahead, good for you, be your true self. That's not what we do. Even though there's no explicit mention in the scriptures, this doesn't mean the Bible has nothing to say regarding the matter. As you see, page two, I have a bunch of scriptures we're gonna walk through. In the same way the Bible doesn't say, do not abort babies, it doesn't say that. It never says that. It does say that to not murder. It does say that God hates hands that shed innocent blood. So an implicit truth is not less valuable than an explicit truth. Does that make sense? We we have these implicit truths in the Bible, and they're not less valuable than explicit. So what we have to do is study the, the whole of Scripture to understand what does the Bible have to say. But fear not that it doesn't say anything explicitly about transgenderism, because it doesn't need to. That's not even an option. It's outside of the sphere of reality. So let's get into this. What does the Bible have to say? First, God created man, male, and female. Genesis 1.27, so God created man, this word man, Adam, Adam, the protoplast, Uh, this is the very first creature of the species, everybody gets to be named after Adam, okay, so humankind, uh, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, mankind uh, has these two categories then that we see, male and female, he created them. So God creates man, and what does man look like? Male and female. Adam is this prototype of all mankind. Eve is this first woman, and they become the parents to all mankind. According to Genesis 3.20, Eve is the, the mother of all living. So since mankind is either male or female, those are the potential options as far as the offspring of Adam and Eve. Those are the options. That's the sphere of reality. Either male or female, this binary categorization. And this binary categorization, as would be expected, it continues throughout the entire Bible. So we have gendered words at every stage of development. Boy, girl, brother, sister, young man, young woman, bridegroom, bride, father, mother, father-in-law, mother-in-law, uncle, aunt, man-servant, maid-servant, prophet and prophetess, prince, princess, king, and queen. On and on and on and on. We have these gendered classifications that is binary. Why didn't I read third options? Because they're, they're not there. It's a binary categorization throughout the Bible that man is created in the image of God, male and female. Every stage of life, human beings are gendered and they fit into one of these two possible categories. And there's a reason for this. Number two, mankind is uniquely and purposefully gendered. I'll read Genesis 1:27 again going into 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Malachi uh, in Malachi 2.15, he references this event. He said, did he not make them, being the male and female, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. So this binary categorization is necessary, is required for the fulfillment of God's purpose of mankind. Male and female are created to complement one another. And notice that Eve's purpose is even declared before she exists, God has a purpose for her. He has a purpose for mankind. Malachi says, godly offspring. God says, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. And notice this, when Eve is created, to, uh, to kind of give a response to the famous existentialist, Jean-Paul Sartre, who says that your uh, existence precedes essence. Uh, that argument is 100% false. He said that as you live and you do and all these things, there's no blueprint for mankind. You just make it up as you go, and that becomes your essence. That becomes what it means to be a man. No. Eve's essence precedes her existence. Her blueprint, her reason, her what it means to be woman exists prior to her creation. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make... He hasn't made her yet, but she already has destiny. And her anatomy determines that. If, she, if, if God had made Eve a man, that would not be her destiny. But he makes it clear that this will be a helper fit for man. Eve was made to be this corresponding complement to Adam. A woman, even in her anatomical composition, is meant to complement a man's anatomical composition. That's, that's what this text is saying. They complement one another. So if you want to listen back to our Theological Equipping class on uh, the roles of men and women, we'll talk about that. And, and marriage and how this all works together, uh, go back and listen to that, I don't have time. <laughs> but it's value in understanding this argument. She does things, Eve does things that a man cannot do. Adam does things that or a man does things Adam does things that Eve cannot do, that women cannot do. But together they can multiply the image of God across the earth. And it's to this that they are called, to multiply this image of God across the earth and subdue it. So gender is necessary for this to even be done. Number three, gender is physically determined. If you haven't noticed, that's what this, the Bible's asserting this, that, that gender is physically determined. So when God creates a helper for the man, he creates one with whom man could actually be fruitful. Had that helper been anything other than a woman physically, there would not be a possibility of fruitfulness. So he commands them, be fruitful because I've equipped you in order to do that. So here's how Eve comes to identify as a woman. How, here's how Eve, according to her sex, comes to identify it with her gender as a woman. Genesis 2, 21 through 23. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that God, the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, he built, he constructed into a woman and brought her to the man. So, so far, we're just talking about physical reality. He built her into a woman. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam doesn't like take Eve to Starbucks get to know how she identifies, get to see how she feels. He makes a physical determination. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is woman. She was taken out of man. Again, Bible asserts that gender is physically determined in God commanding in the covenant of circumcision that males who are eight days old be circumcised. So you have a baby who's born and you make a physical determination. This is their gender. And in order to be in the covenant, you have to submit to this binary categorization. Otherwise, you're outside of the covenant. Does that make sense? I get no nods on that one, so I'll assume we're doing great. (laughs) The child is born. The determination is made right there. They're not waiting to see how the baby identifies. Gender is physically determined. Your physical anatomy determines your gender, and your sex determines your gender. This last one is just for free. It's a funny little thing that we found. Zach found this as we were just looking at different texts. Jeremiah 36, ask now and see, can a man bear a child? What's the answer? No, because he's a man. He can't, he's limited. So yes, could you surgically give me four limbs off of this one arm? Yes, you can totally do that. But is that gonna happen on its own? No, obviously not. So though the transgender movement loves to say this is possible, yes, men can bear children, it is not. Because your gender has nothing to do with how you feel and everything to do with how you've been made. The question will arise, what about those who are born intersex? What about those who are born intersex with the anatomy of both male and female? This used to be called hermaphroditism, though that term's gone out of use what about those born intersex? Is this proof that the binary categories are, are not enough? There should be a spectrum? Because there are several intersex disorders. When a baby is born with, the, with anatomy of both male and female, what do you do? What, this, what does this tell us about gender? Let me first just draw a distinction, because the transgender activists would love to blur these categories, but you really can't. And here's why individuals who identify as transgender are aware of their biological sex. There's no ambiguity, and yet they reject it. The individual rejects their clear and understood biological sex in favor of their newfound gender identity. But intersex, they're attempting to uh, make their gender identity and their biological sex congruent. They're, a ch- they're Attempting to identify with their true given biological sex, but their biological sex is ambiguous. So they're not rejecting their biological sex, they're trying to find it out. Therefore, it requires medical intervention. The individual who identifies as transgender does not require medical intervention because they require psychological intervention. But the individual who is intersex, they're looking for medical intervention to help determine. What went wrong in the genetic coding? What went wrong during the pregnancy? Or why have I not yet developed? And what will I soon develop to be? So if you were to take a child, a baby, 10 days after conception, would we know the gender of that child? No, physically we would not be able to determine the gender of the child. Does that mean the child is then genderless? No, just means we have to wait and by the time the child's born in most cases we'll have a determination but with those who are born intersex they're born and we don't yet have the determination you can you can study you could look at uh, radiological genetic hematological testing and usually make a sound medical determination but in very rare cases this is even difficult and so the best advice is you have to wait you have to continue to let the child develop Not emotionally or psychologically, let the child develop physically and that determination can eventually be made. Now listen, this is super difficult. This is extremely difficult for the children and the parents affected by this, this disorder. This is is a, a disorder, it's not a new norm. You don't throw away the binary categorization because of a disorder. You don't begin when children are born with cleft palates and cleft lips, which happens often, saying that this is the new norm. No, you know the standard, you know the the, the reality, the norm, the way that humanity was intended to be, and you make an appropriate medical intervention. In the same way, intersex individuals uh, are seeking the same medical intervention. So intersex conditions... They do not somehow invalidate the truth of uh, God-created man, man, uh, man, male, and female. It does not somehow invalidate that. And we don't uh, take what is the deviation from the norm. We don't bend the norm to the deviation. If there is an exception to the rule, you don't change the rule in favor of the exception. But rather, you get to the exception in as far as possible, in as far as you can determine to conform to the rule. Number four, God gives gender-specific commands and prohibitions. So you'll see a lot of these overlap, but I wanted to talk about them all. The Bible is full of things that are limited to a specific gender. There are commands to do certain things if you're male or to do certain things if you're female, to not do things if you're male, to not do things if you're female. There are tons of things tons of these you can read for yourself throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all these weird commands that use gross words. So if you want to study those on your own, do them. I won't reference the words, but there's, there's a lot of commands regarding this is what a man should do if this happens, if he's got like a weird pimple thing, here's what a woman should do if this happens. So these commands are specifically gendered. And I'll just reference, last week we talked about Leviticus 18.22 uh, and Leviticus 20.13 as it relates to homosexuality. There's a specific command for a man not to lie with another man, as with a woman, okay? And so there's this gendered command for a man is not to lie with another man, okay? I won't, I won't go into too much detail, but Jeff talked about this last week. This is a serious uh, thing, it's, it, it, the result of which in, in Levitical law is death because it's this symbol, this image of the fall. It's this image of mankind rejecting the the natural design of the Creator in favor of the creature. That's what it is. We talked about that last week. I can't go too far on that. Um, But here's where the weirdness of an argument that I've heard, even from Christians. Well, the fall has affected everything. Everything's broken. So how can you say, we see babies born with deformities, all of these issues, thanks to the fall, How could you not say that a male soul could be born in a female body? Just another effect of the fall. Why can't you say that? Why can't you say that a female soul could could be born into a male body? And that's just brokenness of the fall. There's this incongruence, and that's just part of the fall. These commands make this really weird because if God is commanding that a man shall not lie with another man, Well, what if one of those men is actually a man with a female soul? Does it then make it okay? Or what if a man is lying down with a woman, but she has a male soul? So God is now in the covenant of marriage, commanding homosexuality, at least soulful homosexuality? That sounds like a weird book title. It doesn't work. There's no way for that to actually harmonize with the testimony of Scripture. If God's commanding you to do something, some certain thing, and he is good, he's not gonna command you to do evil, but in covenant of marriage, covenant of circumcision, you circumcising someone that shouldn't be circumcised? Or was there a female who had a male soul and that male is outside of the covenant because she wasn't circumcised? You see how that doesn't work? You can't argue that a female soul could be born in a male body because God makes commands to people as a whole. We doing good? I got a lot of faces that are either just or you're like, where am I going to eat lunch? I don't know. <laughs> the Bible is also aware that there are certain social things that distinguish the sexes from one another. So whether it's clothing or hair length or courageous leadership, that's even one. Uh, the Bible is aware. So Deuteronomy 22:5, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And again, 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 through 15. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Now, the point of these texts are not clothes and hair, okay? So if you have short hair, you're not an abomination, okay? If you have long hair, you're not an abomination. Fear not. The point of this is that there are ways in which someone can purposefully reject gender norms, Okay? Uh, in, in doing what they do, in wearing what they wear, they are making a statement as, I don't want you to see me as I'm created. I want you to see me as something else. There's a, it's, a, it's an identity. It's how they're specifically identifying. And that's what the Bible is prohibiting. It's speaking to anyone that for any reason attempt to identify as something other than their sex. I like what one commentator says. This injunction seeks to preserve the order built into creation, specifically the fundamental distinction between male and female a person to wear anything associated with the opposite gender confuses one's sexual identity and blurs these established boundaries. So that's the point of the commands. Submit to your creator. Do as he would have you do. He's designed you purposefully, specifically, so submit to that. Essentially, to change your appearance, to wear different clothes for the purpose of appearing or socially identifying as the opposite gender is to reject and rebel against the creator's good and perfect design. That's the biblical argument. Number five: life is found in conformity to God's design. Or to counter conformity is life. Not death. Conformity is not fatal. It's life. We have all rejected and rebelled against the Creator. All of us, all of we like sheep, of, sheep have gone astray. We've all rejected the good design of the Creator. We've all rebelled against God and the, against the God of life, and we have uh, ex- exchanged this horrible exchange for the creature. We've enslaved ourselves to sin and death, all of us. And so I want to walk through Romans six seventeen through 23 real quick. By walk through, I mean read it. It's on your paper. But <laughs> thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Thanks for the insult, Paul. For just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And in its end, what? Eternal life. Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is the source of all life. And anything that rejects God's authority, His rule and reign, reaps Death. So we understand this gospel story that in the beginning God created everything good. Man is created in perfection, but rejects the authority of God in favor of the authority of the creature. Sin enters the world, everything's broken, but we have this hope that one day God is going to restore all things, subject everything under Himself once again. So when we see sin, brokenness, chaos, war, evil, those are all signs that the world is against, that the world is rebelling against God's good and perfect rule and reign. But it will not always be so. Christ demonstrates this as he comes. He's casting out demons. He's, he's healing people. He's showing that these effects aren't forever. And I'm the one that has the authority, not me, but Christ is saying, I'm the one that has the authority to, to put to death all enemies of God so that life is eternal. That's this gospel. Life is found only in submission to God's rule and reign, and that's actually our hope. Russell Moore says uh, in one of his books, I can't remember which one, but (laughs) we must conclude that all of us are called to repentance, all of us. And part of what repentance means is to receive the gender with which God created us, even when that's difficult, even when that's difficult, because for many it is. We're all called to repentance. And repentance is difficult for everybody. So how should we respond? We should speak the truth in love. We should uphold the truth graciously. And we point those who struggle with gender dysphoria toward the gospel, just like we would point anybody towards the gospel, Mankind, we cannot create for ourselves a solution. We can't cut something off. We can't manipulate. We can't add hormone or block puberty. We can't do any of these things and somehow create life. Death creates death. Brokenness creates brokenness. We have no solution in and of ourselves. We shouldn't attempt to try to resurrect ourselves. We're born dead in our trespasses. Brokenness doesn't solve, or heal brokenness. So we view and we treat gender dysphoria through what one theologian calls the art restoration view. And I think this is really helpful. Um, I'll, I'll use this as a, as a little example once my little, oh yeah, I already had it turned on. So this is a painting that was inside of a, of a uh, church building in Spain uh, called the Sanctuary of Mercy Church. And it's this 19th century painter's depiction of Christ. Okay, I don't, I don't care what you think about icons and Christ. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about this painting as a whole. This is, it's an image of Christ. Can you tell that it's supposed to be an image of Christ? Yes, but you see how it's kind of flaking off? And over the years, it had deteriorated significantly. This is a fresco painted on like a stucco wall in the church. And so it began to deteriorate. It was, it was, the image was corrupted, but then, what you had was a, uh, an 81 year old woman. I need to take it. She spontaneously and with good intentions took it upon herself to restore this work. She thought, what a shame this beautiful fresco had become. So it's become such a mess. And so, without the church's knowledge or permission, she gathered her paint and paintbrushes and produced what has been called the worst restoration in history. Monkey Christ. <laughs> Monkey Christ. So she painted over it without anyone's knowledge, without the family of the artist's knowledge. She was trying to deal with this brokenness, this corruption of a good and perfect image by out of panic, just trying to slap together a plan. It made this emotional response in her heart go, oh no, that's awful. I need to fix it. Let me grab some paintbrushes. Let me just modify it. Let me paint over it without studying what the, the, the designer, the artist's original intention was. She wasn't at all qualified to be doing such a thing. In the same way, we give the work of restoration to the only man qualified, that being Christ. The only one capable of completing this work of restoration. We can't, we can't fix it. If you know somebody, or if you struggle with gender dysphoria, listen, we, cannot, we can't fix you. Christ is the only solution. We don't have that solution. Only Christ. And for us to try to slap something together is monkey Christ all over again. And that's not our aim. Our aim is the original image of God. Yes, corrupted by sin, but that doesn't mean we paint over it. We seek the original. And we understand that Christ, the true Restorer, the true King of all things, will one day come and make all things new. You don't need to paint over it. He's gonna completely restore it as if it was new. for those who struggle with gender dysphoria and are believers, we care for them, we disciple them in the word, we remind them of the gospel, as we do with any brother or sister who doubts, anyone that struggles with any addiction or anxiety or or anything, anyone that believes that God is not good, we remind them of the good news of the gospel. And for those who struggle with gender dysphoria and are not believers, we don't expect those who are in rebellion to God, who are dead in their sins and trespasses, we don't expect them to care about God's design for humanity, You shouldn't expect that. We don't expect that. Believe it or not, though, the solution is Christ. Our response is to make disciples of all people. We seek to demonstrate that his design is indeed what is best, and we recognize that no one is too far to be redeemed. No one is too far for the gospel. So the most loving thing you could do for someone who struggles with their gender is to point them toward the eternal hope of Christ. And point them toward this good news that one day their struggle will be no more. It may feel awful, but it's momentary affliction when we look at the eternal hope of the resurrection. So, does this mean that we confront every single unbeliever who identifies as transgender? No. This is this difficult work of discipleship. This is the difficult long term work of discipleship. As you grow in relationship with someone, you can begin to offer them the hope of the gospel but this may require a long season without results. Our goal isn't results, our goal is faithfulness. We wanna equip people, we wanna teach people the gospel, and that may take a long time. And you may not yield results, but you be faithful to what God has called you to. So, that being said, I'm gonna pray for us, and then somebody is gonna come and we'll walk through some Q and A. Zachary Teeley is going to come up. So I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the good news of your gospel. We thank you for the hope that though we struggle, though uh, though we're broken, uh, that you're coming to restore all things as they originally were, as they were originally intended. We look forward to the resurrection as our hope. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would put us in relationship with those who struggle with their gender. I pray that we would be in relationship with those who, who are struggling to uh, redeem themselves, to restore themselves, and we would offer them the hope of the gospel uh, so that they would be freed from uh, their obedience, their, their enslavement to sin. And so, Lord, we we love you. We thank you for this good news by which we are all saved and through which uh, we all come to know of this kingdom that you've adopted us into. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to be renewed. Our hearts, our minds would be renewed by the gospel and you would transform us into the image of your son. Uh, It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.